Good morning. Uh, I'm Brad, and excited to share together this morning. To get us started, uh, as before we open God's Word again together, um, I want you to just think about your week for a minute, and think about something that was disruptive in your week. Okay, some, some of you had immediately had something that came to mind. What was disruptive this week? Something disruptive in your week. Turn to somebody near you and just kind of share for a couple minutes. What was disruptive this week? You don't have to share each other's stories, but I'm curious some of the themes that came up as you were sharing about disruption. All right, some of the themes. Field trips was a theme. Rain. Yeah, what were some other themes? Vocation, time, children hiding things. Children hiding things. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. All right. Yeah. The mandatory meetings you find out about the the day of. Yeah. Yeah. Disruptive things. Okay. Yeah. Any other themes over here? Sleep. <laughs> yep. And sickness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I created a natural disaster in my classroom. Oh. All right. We, have a, we made a city, and they've, they've had this story the whole year. And then I created a, an earthquake and a tsunami. And it, wow. It's a disrupted. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Gabe, the teacher who crushes all of his kids' dreams. <laughs> all right. Um, that's really, that's cool, Gabe. Because um, we can learn from disruption, right? I, when we think about disruption, I mean, I mean there's, there's the little and, and big ways that our lives get disrupted from week to week. And then some of us can think on the bigger level, too, those disruptions in our lives. Some of them are welcome, some unwelcome. Um, the disruption of a child entering our life might be really welcome. Um, nevertheless, could completely wreck us, right? Um, the disruption of, of a death of a loved one, the disruption of a move, the disruption of a job or the loss of a job. There's so many ways we could, we could think about this. But I want us to kind of sit with this theme of disruption a little bit this morning. And um, I have a story of disruption if I'm the... The clicker is not actually clicking. Do you need to switch me over, or do you think my? All right, great. Um, Kara is a disruptor, and um, her her middle school soccer journey has been kind of interesting. Where in sixth grade there wasn't a girls' soccer team at her school, and so she disrupted the boys' team and jumped in with them. And um, then in seventh grade, she recruited a friend to join her. And so there were two girls on the team in seventh grade. And then this year, she disrupted the whole system. And so, <laughs> so Kara decided in the fall, it's not cool that we don't have um, a girls' soccer team at our school. And so she talked to the principal. She said, I have a list of girls who would do this. Um, she ended up recruiting 20 girls to play on this team and um, recruited the boys' coach 
to coach the girls instead, <laughs> which made the boys really mad, but it's all right. Um, and this week they finished up uh, and, and really fought hard to the end. It was just really beautiful to watch these girls come together and play in this way. And these were girls who, some of them play AYSO, some of them play clubs, some of them quit soccer, and, and Kara convinced them to play again. Some of them um, had never played soccer before in their lives. And it was, uh, it was a really neat experience. Um, it is disruptive, disruptive. Let's keep thinking about stories of disruption. This week and next week, we're going to look at the story from Acts 16 of Lydia and what we're going to call Lydia's church. Um, and this week, focusing in on disruption, and, and next week, focusing in on this radical belonging. Because I think the story is about both of these things. It's about the Spirit's disruption and about the Spirit creating belonging where there hasn't been belonging. The backdrop for this passage before we read it is what's called the Jerusalem Council. So in Acts chapter 15, you might be familiar with this story. There was this sort of back and forth about are we going to be a church that's rooted in Judaism because it's what the church was born out of or is the church for more than just the Jews? And there's a question that to us seems like a no-brainer, but it was a real serious pivot and the source of a lot of um, disruption, a lot of arguments. Last week, Misty preached on Peter and Cornelius and the retelling of that story. We've now heard that story twice um, in this season, this Easter season, because it's such an important story. It's the story of the, really the second conversion of Peter or maybe the third or fourth conversion of Peter. I'm not really sure in the Gospels when Peter comes to faith, because he's kind of all over the place. Um, most of the disciples are, but especially Peter. But, but then in Acts, we, we read this, this next-level conversion of Peter when he realizes this good news is, is for not just people like me. Um, and it's a pivot. So then there's this, um, what we heard last week, and they're kind of wrestling with this, Right, And then in, in Acts 15, we hear the story about how they decided, okay, we're not going to make all the new Gentile believers become Jews. We're just going to ask them to do a few things. We're just going to kind of ask them. And so they actually wrote this letter. It sounds a little weird to us. It's like, don't, um, you don't have to become Jews, but just don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to other gods. Okay. Don't eat strangled uh, you know, animals, um, the blood of strangled animals, which are like, check, got it, right? And don't participate in sexual immorality. And so these are sort of the, the boundaries they give them, but they say, you don't have to go so far as to fully become Jewish. And this is a big move. This is a big move. So then Paul and Silas um, go on this, like, campaign trail, all right, to the pagan cities of the world to take this message and so that letter goes out to some folks where there's already churches, and they say, well, let's, let's imagine um, where, where the message of Jesus hasn't yet gone. And we can't overstate how disorienting this must have all been for Paul. How disorienting this must have been. Constantly with people he was trained to avoid in homes that 
he was trained to stay out of at tables that he was taught to disgust. I mean, this is now an everyday thing for him. It was disrupted. It was, it was the world, it was Paul's world turned upside down. The believers who had been Jews, um, their world turned upside down. And then these travelers in Acts 16, they pick up Timothy, and Timothy is a multi-ethnic believer in Jesus. And in his body, he bears the stories of, of Greeks and of Jews. His dad was a Greek, his mom was a Jew. And so here's this, this kind of mashup, right? He's a half-blood, he's a bridge. And so they take Timothy with them. And that's where we end up in this passage. I know you all are kind of guessing on my slides, aren't you? Can we actually go back and let's read this first part of the passage. So Paul and his companions traveled throughout the regions of um, Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit kept them from speaking the word in the province of Asia. When they approached the province of Mysia, they tried to enter the province of Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas instead. This, is, this isn't super meaningful for us. We can go to, this, to, to the slide here. Um, Jason, you're great. There you go. Oh, it was just off? Awesome. Thank you. I did. Mine doesn't have an on-off switch, so I wasn't used to an on-off switch. This is great. All right. That's amazing. Um, so as the scene opens, we get a geography tour around this region of the Roman Empire. And this is sort of a way to say, hey, this team is taking the way of Jesus farther than anyone else. They're taking the way of Jesus into new places, into risky places, into dark places. And the Spirit seems to be guiding along. And what's interesting is the Spirit isn't always opening up. The Spirit isn't always saying yes. Sometimes it seems, as they're interpreting this movement that the Spirit's preventing and sometimes sending, and, um, and they're trying to make sense of that as they go. These are our liminal spaces, in-between spaces. Um, and to give us just a sense, again, this, this journey is going, now we're getting ready to cross into, um, into Europe or what we know as Europe now for the first time. So let's keep reading. All right. So they went down to trust instead, and then, verse 9, a vision of a man from Macedonia came to Paul during the night. He stood urging Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. Immediately after he saw the vision, we prepared to leave for the province of Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. So... This vision, this prayer, they interpret this as the Spirit sending them on. That, that kind of makes sense. All right? So, so we're with here. So now they're crossing the sea. They're going 300 miles farther than anyone has ever taken the message of Jesus before in that direction. And eventually to Philippi, which is the most influential city in that area, is the place to be. So now they're in Philippi. In verse 11, so we sailed from Troas straight for Samoth Trace, came to Neapolis the following day. From there we went to Philippi, a city of Macedonia's first district and a Roman colony. 
we stayed in that city several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the riverbank, where we thought there might be a place for prayer. We sat down and began to talk with the women who had gathered. One of those women was Lydia, a Gentile god worshiper from the city of Phyatira, a dealer in purple cloth. As she listened, the Lord enabled her to embrace Paul's message. Once she and her household were baptized, she urged, Now that you've decided that I am a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. She persuaded us. This starts with, uh, on the Sabbath, in verse 13. So, as these visitors to Philippi were trying to look for who might be receptive to the word first, they were following Jewish patterns. And they knew, according to their Jewish patterns, that if there were some Jews in the city, this might be their, their best opening. And they might be meeting outside the gates by the river, on the Sabbath. Um, it seems as though maybe there were not enough men in the city to form a synagogue. So here's this sort of women's synagogue. This women's synagogue meeting by the river. Now, the pattern itself isn't that disruptive. Um, but I wonder about this group of women. Because if we look back at the vision, the text makes it really, really clear that this was a vision of a man from Macedonia. It wasn't just a Macedonian, which already has a male context in the Greek. Like, they added the extra word, as Luke's writing this, to say it was a Macedonian man. A man. A man. If you didn't catch that. Clearly what they found were women. Undisputedly, um, as Justo Gonzalez points out, talking about this passage, if Paul had seen a vision of Lydia, of Thyatira, he may not have gone to Macedonia. We don't know. We don't, we don't want to judge Paul too harshly here. But he might have thought, oh, I'm not sure that that's like what God, how God is furthering the church. Um, but this vision of a man sent them to find these women, and specifically this woman, Lydia. So these women were gathered to, to pray. It's unclear if some of the women were Jews, but it's clear that Lydia was not. She was not a Jew. She was a pagan woman who worshipped God, but was not fully Jewish. She was an immigrant, a dealer in purple cloth, um, Thyatira was famous for this purple cloth, so it seems like maybe she went back and forth between these cities. She was not a peasant vendor, though. She, she's a businesswoman. So there's some wealth implied here. She's a homeowner. Seems like maybe it was a large home, um, based on what happens from here. And this, the text says that the Lord opened her heart to this message. The Spirit is moving in disruptive ways for Lydia, too. And so she's baptized along with her household, and apparently she's the head of her household. There's no men mentioned here. Um, 
Paul, it's fair to say, wasn't expecting any of this. There's been a lot of, um, um, I don't know, amusing on Lydia. In some traditions, she is a saint, and she has her own kind of images or icons. Um, I think this one's interesting. Like, here, here's Paul and these guys, and here's Lydia and these women um, kind of encountering each other there by the river. Um, and some of these visions around Lydia's prayers. I, I think this is a story about trust and faithfulness. I wonder, when I wonder about this story, like, how many times before had Lydia come to the river to pray? How many times before had these other women met to pray together? Like, what were they expecting? What were they hoping for? What were they longing for? Why show up again and again and again? And maybe guiding themselves. We don't know what they had. Did they have some, some of the Old Testament you know, scrolls that they were working with? Did they have just stories that had been passed on? We don't know. But it seems like this was a pattern for them. And I, and I wonder what they expected. And I wonder, um, you know, how many times before she had come preparing for this morning when her story would be disrupted in a new way. And I think there's a word here for us. I wonder, why show up? What do we expect? Why bother to drag yourself to church every Sunday? Why bother for those who have kids um, to go to the extreme effort of getting your family out the door to church? I, I wonder, for those of you who maybe a roommate or a spouse doesn't, isn't as interested as you are in showing up, I wonder for, for those of us who do, um, what do we expect? What might we be open to? And how, how could our frame change if we're never just showing up to church? We're never just coming to church, or, or we're never just praying. We're never just opening the Bible, but we're anticipating something. If nothing else, the stories in Acts are stories of people whose lives are disrupted by the Spirit. And often because they're anticipating something, because they're hoping for something. Um, we don't know what God might have in store. But I wonder what it would be like to have an open posture. So after this comes a challenge. Right? And this last line is fascinating. Now that you've decided that I'm a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. Translations kind of treat this differently. A lot of them say if. If you consider me a believer. If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord. Come to my house. Come stay at my house. Lydia's opening up hospitality here. But it's, it's sort of on the premise of a challenge. Like, hey Paul, do you mean it? Hey, am I, am I really in? Am I really in? And we're going to pick up that theme next week a little bit more. But what does it mean that, that Jews and Greeks and Romans can really eat together around a table? 
And apparently the Spirit's yes required Paul's yes. And the Spirit, combined with Lydia's persuasion, um, led to a new thing here. This is a new kind of church. This is a new kind of church than what we've seen in Acts before. Later in the story, Paul and Silas end up in prison. And when they're released, it's Lydia's house they return to, um, where others have been gathered to pray. And clearly at this point, there's a church that Lydia, that's meeting in Lydia's house. Um, so we might call her the Apostle Lydia. Uh, much later, from prison in Rome, Paul would write a letter to Lydia's church. We've already read it some this morning. We know it as Philippians. And uh, as Paul opens this letter, he says, I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers. Many of you are familiar with this passage. I'm thankful for all of you every time I pray, and it's always a prayer full of joy. I'm glad because of the way you've been my partners in the ministry of the gospel from the time you first believed it, we could add, that day by the river, until now. I'm sure about this. The one who started a good work in you will stay with you to complete the job by the day of Christ Jesus. That spirit who's about disruption is also a spirit about faithfulness, about making whole, about new creation. So this story got me thinking about other stories of disruption. And I'm not suggesting that every disruption is good or that every disruption is from God. But often disruptions open up something in us. They open up something new. And I wonder um, about how we could think about that. I, I was thinking about this. I, I, thought about, I thought about Pauline, actually, um, who's worshipped in this building longer than any of us um, as part of two different congregations. And, and I think about the disruption that Mountainside was in Pauline's life and how, how graciously um, she's received that and, in a sense, received us into her house um, to, be, to be us, to be a, a worshiping community together. And I hope we've been, um, I hope we've been a spirit-led disruption in Pauline's life. <laughs> I was thinking about disruption. Um, sometimes when my phone rings and it's somebody from Mountainside, um, maybe it's Josh... Maybe it's Pat, maybe it's Sonia. I think about the words that Sonia, that Sonia shared at Jan Brown's funeral about when she would get a call from Jan that she'd have to pause for a minute um, and think carefully before answering that call, like, what might this require of me? What might this call require of me? Because often Jan would be calling about a need that she'd heard about. Someone who, who mountainside might be able to, to meet that need. Um, or a question or, or a challenge. Or she's always calling us to, to faithfulness in sometimes disruptive ways. Um, sometimes phone calls are disruptive. And I thought about someone named Jennifer who was disruptive in our life. About 14 years ago, uh, when Anna was in her Ari Bolt phase, um, 
uh, we met <coughs> we met Jennifer. Uh, this is you, you're welcome. Um, <coughs> We had Jennifer. Jennifer was a, a musician. She was, uh, we moved into a house that we were renting, and in the other half of the house, she was renting it. And so she kind of became our housemate. She had a key um, to our kitchen and would do laundry in our kitchen. And um, we had lots of opportunities to just kind of chat together. And um, Jennifer was a jazz musician, so she would be up late at night, and we had a toddler who was up early in the morning in this old house with wooden floors and really echoey, and um, that didn't always work well, but, but she was a lovely neighbor. Um, she would play with Anna in the yard and um, sometimes throw a ball back and forth with her because she used to play baseball, um, and then eventually played with Kara, uh, and then we moved before Joel was born. But, um, but Jennifer was our neighbor for four years, um, and Jennifer was also transgender. And this was a disruptive relationship w for us. Um, Jennifer was a, a, a ja in the jazz community um, for a long period of time and, and transitioned right before we met her. We only knew her as Jennifer, but she told us stories about actually being blacklisted. She played for Mel Torme until he died, and then um, she played with Doc Severinsen and then actually was was kicked out of that band um, because, of, because of her life choices. So she was disruptive for us in the, in the sense of, here, here's this, this person, and well, you know, what do we do with this person in our lives? Um, not nearly as disruptive as the things going on in her, in her own life. But she was just given to us as Jennifer. And what became interesting to us is just being her neighbors. Um, was something that was, I think, healing for Jennifer. She would play with Anna in the yard, and, and we learned that she was not allowed to play with her own nieces and nephews um, because her family had completely um, cut her off. And so it was healing for her to have a chance to play with little kids. Um, we were just being neighbors. You know, I don't think we did anything extraordinary. But it was a reminder for us um, of, of that we needed that disruption. And I think Jennifer was given to us, not as a category or a policy or a debate, but as a human, um, a lovely human. Like Lydia was given to Paul. Sometimes disruption can be a means of grace. And I think Lydia was a means of grace for Paul like Jennifer was a means of grace to us. I think Lydia deepened Paul's trust in the Spirit. Acts is about conversions, and conversions are always disruptive. This conversion and reconversion of Peter and the conversion and reconversion of Paul, and, and a lot of these are stories of being rescued, about, rescued from our certainty about God being rescued from certainty about God. That was Lydia's gift to Paul, I think. It was Cornelius' gift to Peter. You, you know, we were looking at that story of Peter last week. Uh, Peter's a good Jew, but he's no theologian, right? He was a fisherman. Paul, though, Paul was a Jew among Jews. Paul was a God expert. 
Paul was good at being right about God and good at being right about who's in and good at being right about what things should look like. And I think this was a lot. This was too much because suddenly all of this was useless. A Gentile woman was now going to be the founding member and host of the first church in a new land. And maybe that's what he was remembering later when he wrote about in Philippians, uh, when he was reflecting back to his own merits. And he said, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value, superior value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've lost everything for him. But what I lost, I think of as sewer trash. We could use a stronger word there. So that I might gain Christ and be found in him. The righteousness that I have comes from knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings. Paul had to say, all my rightness about God, all my certainty about God, I was forced to set all of that aside. And it's people like Lydia, it's people like you, Philippian church, who helped me see that God was doing a greater thing. You know, it's interesting, Lydia, like Ananias from chapter 9, Josh preached a few weeks ago about Ananias, um, Lydia disappears in name after 16, Acts 16, after the end of this chapter. Her church carries on, but not her name. Uh, but like Ananias, uh, her story is enfolded in Paul's story. It's enfolded in Silas's story and Timothy's story. It's enfolded in... The story of anyone, has anyone ever memorized a passage from Philippians? All right, some of you who grew up in the church, um, you might have memorized one of these passages from Philippians. If nothing else, um, you know, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength, right? If you were in a youth group in the 90s, you had to memorize that. <laughs> I wonder about how Lydia's unfolded in our story. Uh, later in Philippians, we have an early hymn of the church that we read this morning about how Jesus emptied himself of power and authority in order to become a servant, to lose everything. And we're invited into that story, along with Paul, this story of, of losing, of being willing to be disrupted in order to gain Christ and be found in him. So I wonder this week uh, for us, Let's consider the disruptions in our lives. Let's consider those disruptions, the little ones, the big ones, and wonder what, what God might be up to in the midst of our disruptions and invite God to be present in them. Because the Spirit's disruptions allow us to see our lives as they are held in union with God. I think Lydia was ready for that. I think she was hoping for that. And God's spirit met her there that morning by the river. Let's pray. God, we come in anticipation. We don't always welcome disruption in our lives, but God, we want to be open to whatever disruption you want in our lives. 
God, we want to be um, faithful to the ways that, that you are faithful to us. We want to trust that you want to do something new in our lives. And I pray this morning that we would enter deeper, that we would step deeper into those disruptive places of trust and of risk. Like Lydia and like Paul, God, that, that you would meet us there. In Jesus' name, amen.